how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this week actor, singer, voiceover, and of course, impressionist, Steve Mallon. Steve, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, thanks for inviting me. Excellent. Well, it's a, it's a lovely sunny day. We're both slightly hiding, cowering away from the sun today, but yes. uh, never mind that. Uh, I, I was watching a little bit of video of you on your website, a little bit of stand-up where you talked about the, the joys of living in uh, High Barnet. Are you, are you still a High Barnet resident? Yes, I'm here now. Yeah, the, the story behind that was, and it's a sort of true story, but in stand-up you've got to subtly play around with it. Yeah. When I first moved in, well, I'll tell you how I do it in the stand-up. I, I live in High Barnet. You know, I live alone. And anyway, my, it's quite a posh area, you know, it's High Barnet. Mm-hmm. Well, semi-posh, it's, you know, you, you, you get graffiti, but it's things like down with Byzantine church music. Anyway, we got <laughs> to a situation where I'd lived here for about six months and my neighbor came up to me and she's quite a posh lady. She said, you live alone, don't you? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I live alone. I said, why, why do you ask? She said, well, she said, it's just that we, we keep hearing all these different voices and and we never z- seem to see anyone coming in or out. Anyway, I told her what I did for a living, and she said, "How very interesting." She said, "These these voices they they don't affect your mental health in any way, do they?" <laughs> no, I I never do what the voices tell me to. Not after the court case. Anyway, that is more or less true. Except she didn't speak like that, so I just made that voice up because she wasn't remotely posh. But <laughs> I didn't tell anybody what I did, and and the neighbours did hear all these different voices, and and they were rather confused about it because you know, like all impressionists, I have to practice a lot. So. In, indeed, indeed. Well, I, I know High Barnet very well. I'm a Muswell Hill resident, and I often take that route up to High Barnet on my daily cycle uh my my lockdown hour. Oh, it's uphill then you yeah. must be very fit <laughs> well I, I i'm not that fit but i struggle up and then i freewheel down and breeze blowing through my uh, my helmet uh, in, in, the, in the old days uh, the high barnet used to be the highest point or the church in high barnet was the highest point between here and york oh uh, before this, I built, yeah. Uh, well, that's that, interesting you mentioned York. You're, you're from that kind of neck of the woods. You're from Leeds, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm from yeah. Leeds. Yeah. Okay. So there you are. You're, you're kind of the same vintage uh, as me. So we, we go back roughly 60 uh, odd years. T- tell me uh, a little bit about your boyhood and your first acknowledgement of this uh, gift that you have for voices. Well, I, I live in High Barnet now, but uh, I come from a quite a rough, tough background. Uh, cobble streets outside toilets. I had consumption when I was a kid. Um, I was in hospital for a while. My family background is complicated, so I won't go into too many details. But when I was a teenager, I went to live with my grandmother and oh, my grandparents, and they helped bring me up. But when I was very young, and, and I, I, you, you are talking three, four, five, I was constantly dressing up in a scarf. 
I had this long white scarf mm-hmm. and I, it was so long I could, it could become a shawl. It could, could become a turban. It could become a train. And this shawl, which I used to dress up behind the couch, I created all these characters in my head. I don't remember doing any vocal characterization with them because I think it was all in my head at the time. Wait, were but, you an, an only child? No, I had a sister, but I've never understood. People, people who, who have parents who are actors, they just don't get me because they said, how, you know, I'm in acting because my, you know, my father was an actor or whatever. I said, look, I don't know where it comes from. I, I don't know why this very working class lad from Leeds was wanted to be a performer, wanted to, from, from the year three, four, there was never anything else in my life. Really? Um, so the impressions in a way, which started when I was a teenager, they, I think, were a byproduct of, of that. So I didn't get to the age of 14 and realize that I could do funny voices. What it was, was that I always wanted to be a performer. And I suddenly at the age of 14, that was an aspect of what I did. And That's interesting so, that because, I mean, uh, the, that, that urge to perform, was it something that you did in front of family, in front of friends, were you? No, the, the, no it was the, all in my head. Except okay. Auntie Edie used to get me to sing Ave Maria at Christmas. I would get sixpence for it, and I had a nice voice, uh, a nice, you know, uh, sort of nice tenor voice. Uh, and I do remember that because at the same time, uh, two things happening together, which is very typical for performers: you want to perform, and you're terrified of doing it at the same time. I know that well. Yeah, uh, and it's there with all entertainers and actors, and it's a weird contradiction because you want to show off, but you're frightened that you're going to get it wrong and look stupid. I mean, are you are you, are the, are you the, 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 the the classic introvert? Are you the classic shy uh, uh, perfor- person? I think I, I'm the classic watcher. I think the person who sits at the side watching and right. observing, and I think all impressionists have to be natural observers or by osmosis we can talk about this later or by osmosis you you sort of soak it in and, and out they come yeah, a little yeah. bit like that scene in alien you know when the chest burst a thing it yeah. you know, they do burst out of you you have almost no control over it well then let's go back to i don't know let's say you know the the the, the late 60s uh, early 70s even going going through the 70s so you're you're going through your teen years what were the first voices that you first started doing i think i I have a memory bizarrely of doing louis armstrong which must be strange i mean but there's something i learned this many years later something called false fault for nation which is basically when you when you wrap your vocal cords around each other and you get that sort of hello dolly well hello dolly and and I even at that, and I learned to do that when I must have been about ten or eleven, and it's not very good for your voice. I mean, it's one of the worst things you can do to your vocal cords, uh, because essentially you're you're rubbing them against each other, and they shouldn't be rubbed against each other. I vaguely remember doing Popeye as well, but I think really the impressions began when Mike Yarwood came on television because uh, yeah. he was very very popular. So we would see his show on a Saturday night, and then. Uh, on Sunday, we, uh, on the Monday at school, we talk about the show, and and a lad started. Uh, he said, "Oh, I I can do Brian Clough by holding my nose," 
And I said, well, actually, I can do Brian Clough without holding my nose. <laughs> yeah, I said, what do you mean? How do you do that? How, how, how do you? I said, I don't know. You just, you don't, you don't have to hold. I'm holding my nose now. You don't, you don't have to hold your nose. You can just do it. Yeah. So you're, I, you're I, kind of, I mean, you were sort of perhaps instinctively channeling that sound kind of through through your sinuses somehow i think that, that yes i i don't know how uh, the, somehow my brain was able to minutely alter something between my nose and my mouth and my tongue and all the rest of it and it's all minute things mm. um, and, and it could do that and it, 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 i had no other muscles i was used to as a football or anything <laughs> like that but some, somewhere the muscles in my ear, nose and throat could do things that other people couldn't do. So, so um, that's a, an, an instinctive sense of, of how to produce sound, how to produce... But, of course, mimicry is not just about that. It's about accent. It's about how you present character and so on. You're probably best known. I don't know if this drives you mad now, but you're best known for your Margaret Thatcher impression. It was very much the, the seminal... Margaret Thatcher impression. You did it on Spitting Image alongside lots of other voices. And you, I remember you dragging up and doing, doing Maggie as well. H- how did you arrive at that voice? Because obviously... Well, this- I, again, I have to thank Mike Yarwood because it was about 1975, 1976. So uh, I was about 15 or 16. And Mike came on the television and started doing Margaret Thatcher. And yeah. he acknowledged many years later that it, that it wasn't very good. And so... In those days, I would get a mirror. I don't do that anymore, but I would get a mirror and then practice a, a voice. And maybe it's because I had a, a higher voice, or I don't know, but it was one of those voices where, and, and Mrs. Hatcher in those days had, had a much higher voice than she, than she later had. Mm. I don't know, somehow it came out, and it came out straight away like that. <laughs> and I've no idea why, because I... I didn't really know who she was. She'd only been leader of the opposition for a very, very short time. And that's actually how she spoke in, 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 yeah, the, yeah. in the 1970s. I just, I just wanted to say it's interesting because I can see you. Obviously, our, our listeners won't get this uh, opportunity. But I, the way you're, you're shaping your mouth and forming your S's is exactly how I remember her doing it. There was a kind of a, almost like a slight overbite did you consciously or unconsciously I think that, mirror her mouth? Movements? It has to be. Well, it, it, everything I think is on the whole unconscious. I have done occasionally voices when I've listened again and again and, and worked out the vowels and all that. Yeah. They're never yeah. very good. They're never as good as, as, as the instinctive ones. Mm. Many years ago, I was at you know, university days and people knew I did voices and, and stuff. And somebody said, oh, do David Hurst, who was one of the lecturers. And so I did David Hurst and everybody laughed. And I had, what did I do? I had no idea what I had done. Yeah. And what I had done apparently was I had stuck my tongue out to the side of my mouth, which is something that he did that I, I genuinely didn't know. Uh, he used to do, well, you can't see it, but um, uh, he used to, when he was thinking, he used to just stick the tongue out at the top of his lips. And I genuinely didn't know what I had done. So it, it was somehow instinctive. Well, that's uh, interesting because I've, I've spoken to uh, other, other impressionists along the course of making an impression, and some are instinctive. I was certainly an instinctive impressionist, and so it tended to be the case that the more I tried to 
you know, take a, a, an academic approach to breaking down a voice, the, the, the less good it got. You know, I kind of just lost sight of it by, by trying to analyze it. So you're very much in the, in the instinctive camp. Yeah, I think so. I, the, the, I decided to do a routine for my stand-up, uh, and I thought there were lots of detectives on television. And one, obviously the, one of the most popular, this was about 20 years ago, was Inspector Morse. Now, with a, with a dodgy uh, Geordie accent, you could get away with Lewis. But I decided to listen to a lot of Morse, and I did some tape recordings I got as far as Lewis, that's about it, which is that false alternation <laughs> by just yes. That's about all that, as far as I got. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I spent, you know, a two hour car journey lost just listening to that voice. And I wanted to do some other voices as well. Anyway, I came home, put my bags down. And this is absolutely true. Suddenly from nowhere came Joan Hickson as Miss Marple. <laughs> I hadn't yeah. been thinking about it, you see. It just came out, and I thought, goodness me, where on earth has she come from? <laughs> oh, probably the, probably the vicarage. That's where she's been. I mean, subconsciously, I must have wanted to do that voice, but I have no idea where it came from. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned you, you went to university. Was it Birmingham? Is that right? Birmingham, yeah. And was your degree uh, it was kind of an arts it was drama in, in degree? drama and English. Right. And to my mind, it it was a a brilliant course. So, it, or it, it was a course that suited me anyway. And and I learned a lot. Uh, you know, I did not know who Chekhov was. I had no idea who Strindberg. So th- there was a whole. Oddly enough, I had seen a Chekhov play, but I didn't know it was a Chekhov play. So there was a whole world that was opened up to me. Uh, which, did it involve performance at all, or, or did you? Oh yeah, I mean, very much. So. And in fact, the, 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 and I'll do an impression of it. I like doing impressions that people have never heard of. Jerry McCarthy. <laughs> Jerry McCarthy was one of our lecturers, and he came out to me one day and he said, "Steve, he'd seen me do Margaret Thatcher." He said, "He said you're Margaret Thatcher. It's pure Stanislavski." I didn't really know what he meant, but um, but he said the problem is, you see, what you've then got to do is create something that from yourself that isn't somebody else you're not reproducing somebody else but create a character from within you that fits the text and in all honesty i'm not quite sure that i've ever quite achieved that Sanatlaski ambition partly because yeah. i've not probably done as much acting as, as uh, perhaps i would have liked to but uh, and occasionally i I've, I've acted and quite enjoyed it but it tends to be i mean people talk about Sanatlaski, it's the outside in or the inside out yeah. and actually i think it's a mixture of both it's a it's a mixture of you know that famous story of, of olivia's you know have you found your have you found the character uh, lawrence he said no but i found his hat and it's that thing of, <laughs> yeah. of creating yeah. a character by putting the hat on. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. with Beryl Reed. Uh, with Beryl Reed, uh, it was the shoes. <laughs> you, you know, she'd find the right shoes and that would create the character. But the, the thing is there, if they're very flat shoes or tight shoes or, or high heels, that's going to make you walk in a different way anyway. So it would naturally help create the character and obviously it's a with Olivia if it was a big hat you're flamboyant if it's a small sort of 
sort of policeman's hat, you know. You yeah, can be very yeah. so, so I think there is some element of that. But also what my lecturer was telling me, he said, you've got to go inside yourself and get stuff out, to, you know, and make it as real as you have with the Thatcher thing. And did you augment that with, you know, perhaps going to comedy clubs or going to, into trying to get into reviews or that sort of thing to well, give I'd, I'd, expression uh, to your comedy and your voices? Going back before university, I, I, I mentioned the working class background, not to sound like a character in a Monty Python sketch, but when I was growing up, the only live entertainment that was around me were the Northern clubs. And... I'm old enough to remember people doing Al Jolson impressions in the clubs. People yeah. don't do that, but they'll, you know, be singing Dixie and actually blacking up. So actually when I, you know, wanted to perform when I was about 16, uh, and this goes back to my grandmother living with her, I said, I'm going to do an act and I'm going to try to get on the clubs and, but I need your help because you've got to come with me because she had to take me to the various in those days, what would happen? You would, you you do a pub talent show. You'd then get invited to do a midweek club charity show. Concert secretaries would come to see that, and then you would get booked for the northern clubs, which is what I did for about two years. I wasn't so you, very were successful. You, you were st- still at school at the time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. In, in fact, I I I screwed up my A level mocks, failed pretty much everything because I right. was doing the clubs. And they said, look, you've got to do something about this because, you know, you've got, you've been offered a place at university. You know, I knew that I only really had one chance, but then I had to give up the clubs and just concentrate on my A-levels, which I then got to do, you know, but, but, but so I was doing the clubs and that was great. I wasn't a natural at it in terms of Clubland. that there's, there was some very, very successful performers on Clubland. I just, I realized just, I didn't have that force of personality so, I mean, it's a very, I mean, would have thought that's very much a school of hard knocks, particularly if you're 16, 17. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd get booed off and paid off um, yeah. uh, quite often, frankly. Uh, but then, you, you know, the thing about that world was that you, you could do the same act in, in two different clubs in the same night and mm. be completely, a completely different audience in both, sure. you know. And, just a, and, and the guys that I was working with, uh, the, um, they, they were really very helpful and their, their basic attitude was, look, you've got raw talent, but that's all you've got. Right. You haven't got these, the, the wherewithal on stage to, you know, you come on, you've got the talent, but that's, you, you've now got to develop the stage personality. You've got to develop all that stuff. And actually, you know, I was seen for a show called, it wasn't New Faces. It was, it was a talent show. Uh, and the casting director was a, a man called Bill Hettersley. And I mentioned this because I met him years later. And he said, I remember you from the clubs. Right. And I didn't put you on the talent show. You were good enough to come on the talent show. And he said, I think you would have come second or third. You wouldn't have won it because Impressionists don't. He said, you'd have come second or third. You'd have probably gone to Blackpool for a summer season. And that would have been it. And the agent who was there that night told me that you had a place at university. And I thought, this kid would be better off going to university than coming on our show. That was a fascinating conversation to have because I never yeah. knew back on the clubs why I, because everybody said you're going to, you know, you'd be along on television, you, you know, and the guy didn't book me. And then I discovered years later why, and I thank him. I've thanked him because I said, you were absolutely right. 
perceptive really because you know it's very easy to just throw somebody in and say look you you know you can you can do a few voices and you you can you're well you're he told me a lot about casting directors who i've always had therefore respectful because he wasn't thinking oh there's this young lad in leeds i've found i can get him on the television and i'll mm. do you know i'll feather in my cap uh, he was thinking no this young lad uh, it wouldn't be right for him He's got a different path. Let him do that. And I, I thought that was a, you know, just a very good thing to do. At that time, then, Mike, you mentioned Mike Yarwood, who was really the the best impressionist around. Perhaps almost kind of the only impressionist around. Till you well, started was, to see was, who do you was, do. Uh, well, there's who do you do, and I was thinking mm. about who do you do. There was um, I, I enjoyed Peter Goodright because he did. Oh, all he, the was, people that, he was. He great, did all the people yeah. that were dead. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Him. That's right. Yeah. Uh, people like yeah. Arthur Askey and and. Uh, yes. it, Dame Edith Evans, he did. Yeah. There was a, a, an impressionist called Aidan J. Harvey. Um, yes, I remember him. Johnny Moore, who did yeah. uh, all, singing all, impressions. I remember all of those from Roger Kitter. Uh, who did you do? But, Kitter, yes, as well. And I used to watch Parkinson, and every so often Rich Little from America would come over. Now, the thing, yeah. That, yeah. The thing that struck me about Yarwood that made him different and made him special was that what he did was take people who weren't funny and he made them funny. Yeah. People were not comedians, people were not actors. And he then would, uh, the famous one was the rugby league commentator, Eddie Waring, but mm-hmm. also Brian Clough and of course, Harold Wilson. So that was his real, uh, and I think he's been underestimated in in that because the, the who do you do is the roger kitters and the ed and j harveys and so on that were all very good at reproducing the voices brilliant reproductions and that was about it they did well, i've, I've said I've, that's right I've, I've actually said in, in an earlier episode of making an impression that i thought yarwood was perhaps not the most accurate vocally necessarily but what he did as you say I mean, he just sent, found things in people, making them funny when they, they weren't ordinarily funny. For example, as I've, I've mentioned this one before, Dennis Healy. You know, what is Healy, really? And it was such a thing. It was exactly what you kind of imagined Dennis Healy might say, but probably never said until Yarwood said it. Dennis Healy was essentially a thug. He was known as the sort of <laughs> yes, rockviler of the Labour Party. He, and, and he made him cuddly. And he made him very cuddly. And everybody, and the thing was, after that, everybody who did impressions of Dennis Healy (laughs) were actually not doing Dennis Healy at all. They were doing Mike Yarwood. Well, that's great, because that brings me on to the next question, which is when you were a a young kid doing impressions. Now, you and I, as I say, we're similar vintage. I never imagined I could ever become a performer or an impressionist. I was much too shy. I didn't think I could do voices particularly well. So what I used to do was do impressions of Mike Yarwood's impressions, which I think a lot of kids did in those days. So was your early act very much a a Mike Yarwood pastiche or a parody? I'm not quite sure which is the right word, but... Were you doing that consciously or unconsciously, or were you trying to forge your own... No, a mixture of the two, because okay. I, I certainly did voices that Mike Yarwood did. I avoided Eddie Waring. I, I thought, well, no, that sort of belongs to him because that's his. I did a bit of Brian Clough. Because I was doing Thatcher on the clubs, I, I did a crosstalk act with Callahan, Wilson, Ted Heath and Thatcher. 
And what I was doing different was obviously I was doing Margaret Thatcher, uh, which is a bit unusual. Mm. I think the voices that I was doing that nobody else did, even in those days, I can think of two. One was Leonard Rossiter, which people oh. didn't do in those days. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean to see Miss Jones. <laughs> I said, Miss Jones, I said, will you, um, will, will, will you marry me? She said, Mr. Rigsby, with, with those words, you, you remind me of the sea. As I said, Miss Jones, I said, is it because I'm, it's because I'm wild, romantic and restless. She said, no, you make me sick. Uh, now, I, <laughs> I did that gag yeah. back in 1976 or 78. Yeah. And then, and actually, the, the original parent voice was very slightly different. It was a slightly more refined sort of voice. And I and and the guys who I because I lived, you know, I used to pull pints in a in a bar in the club. They all called me uh, Reggie after Reginald Perrin because this do your Reginald Perrin, Steve. And then you know, I counted them. I'm sitting behind the bar. I've kind of, so that's how you you know used to do <laughs> Reginald Perrin. And the other one that I did that 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 nobody else did, and to my knowledge, I don't think many people have ever done, was John Inman, because you, you had um, Are yes. You Being Served uh, going on. So I was able to write, I wrote, I, won't, I can't remember what the script was, but, um, you know, he was uh, hugely popular, and, and Mike never, ever did no, uh, no. John Inman. No. Um, so, but yeah, I, I was all I was doing the voices that my my Yarwood was doing, and I and I had the great pleasure of working with him as well. And we had a long chat about stuff. I did my John Inman for him, and he thought it was brilliant. But he said, "Don't do any more." And I thought I wondered why. And and you know, he'd come to a stage in his life where he said, "I know that, and it's brilliant, Steve." But I think he'd come to a stage where he he wasn't able to do voices anymore. He wasn't able to generate them, and, and nearly everybody he did was actually older than himself. Was and this was this for a pilot on BBC? No, it was for his Thames show. Ah, um, oh, okay. Uh, so I know I th- this was th- I did the pilot as well, the one that you're talking about. I think so we we so taking we off with before. Yarwood. Was it called taking off with Yarwood? It was. I can't remember. We did it in front of the uh, lottery audience. That's right. Yeah. Oh, so so we've met before, and I, uh, so it shows no, you no, how. No, we might not have met. I think what happened was did they, they did it over several weeks. Ah, okay. And there were several. There were the, what they didn't tell us. They were trying different people out. Okay. <laughs> so there were different. Okay. <laughs> Different impressions came up each week, and it never it never materialised. He he, no. he he we had a long chat about it, and he said the difficulty is that when you get to a certain age, you can't do impressions of people younger than yourself. When you're 25 and doing somebody who's 50, that's funny. Mm-hmm. When you're 50 and impersonating somebody who's 25, it somehow just doesn't work. And so he was aware that the the voices that he was doing were all older than himself, and he was he was also struggling to generate new voices. And he also said to me, he said he loved my Mrs. Thatcher walk because I uh, I created this walk, and he said they'll take it from you, you know, they'll spot it, and then they'll start doing it. Yeah. And I thought, well. I hate to tell you this, Mike, but I've been doing that to you for you for a long while as well. So uh, let yeah. me at it. But, um, well, first of all, I would say that's why I gave up stand up because I started to find all the voices I could do were were people younger than me, and it just didn't feel right. It didn't look right. 
Um, and the ones that I did that were older than me, no one knew who the hell I was doing. Um, the other thing is, I, I, on that particular pilot, uh, the one that I did, I met Mike. And he was a lovely, lovely man. And you're absolutely right. He'd lost his mojo, I think. His voices yeah. had gone. They were either old one. He started doing Eddie Waring in the middle of, you know, I was sitting there with, I don't know, Lewis McLeod and John Colshaw. And it just didn't feel right. And also he struggled to read the auto cue. And I, and I got the sense that, I think he'd had problem with with alcohol, which he freely freely admitted. And I yes, felt yes. that you know they were trying desperately to sort of shoehorn him back into something. But I think he knew it wasn't there anymore. Well, he, he was very he was very sensible financially all the way yeah. through the seventies. And I haven't seen him for a while, but I spoke to Barry Cryer and I said, you know, how is Mike? He's always very well, and you know he has a good life, and you know he's active and and so on. So. I think he's, you know, he's still with us and, and so on. But I was aware of that. And, and I mention it partly because I'm there now. I'm at that, you know, in my late 50s. And I don't do new voices. I don't do that stand-up anymore because mm. I enjoyed it. And it was a bit, but it was, it, it was a bit of a challenge doing Preston University on a Friday night. Yeah. And, and what I found was that I could do it and I could win them over. Uh, and I was really quite sort of happy with what I'd done. But I had that extra battle as soon as I came on. Who was this older guy? He was doing impressions. That's unusual. Mm-hmm. You know, when people come on and comedians nowadays come on and tell you their life story, basically. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not what I do. And I sort of realized that I had to win them over before I could even get any yeah. further so yeah. i just thought no i'm going to stop all this really. yeah i mean well it's, it's exactly my uh, my experience and i was you know it's quite a successful stand-up for 15 years or so and then it, i just started to feel no this is i shouldn't be here i don't i don't really belong here anymore and and, and gradually you know i stopped doing it let's move on a little bit then so you were at birmingham mm-hmm. and within a pretty short space of time you were on spitting image Yes, so within um, months, really. I mean, it was yeah. just very fortuitous. I had done some rep, although oddly enough, I'd played Mrs. Thatcher in rep because somebody I knew at university told his father about me and uh, there was a, a musical in Theatre Cluid that involved Mrs. Thatcher. So I actually did some rep in uh, September, October, I think of 83. Then I said, look, can I stay at the theatre and do something? This, he said, well, th- yes, but the only part that's available is the back end of the horse in panto uh, and you can do that if you want but i wouldn't recommend it and the lovely old actor i worked with said to me said stephen you only do the back end of the horse if you get top billing and i smiled he said you do not do the back end of the horse you are an actor you do not do the back end of the horse Uh, all right right, liam okay i won't do the back end of the horse it was the best possible advice that i had in a way because i went back home and I think within a week or so, I read about Spitting Image. I wrote letters everywhere trying to get hold of John Lloyd, who then met me. I thought it was a bit of a joke meeting this guy who claimed to do Margaret Thatcher. He said, well, w- will you do Margaret Thatcher then? I said, no. Uh, I said, what I want you to do is to ask me a question and I will answer it, Mrs. Thatcher. I can't just, I'm not going to do an audition piece. I thought, all right, okay, we'll try that. So I did that. And, um, well, you can try it now if you want to, 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 to re- recreate the audition moment. You know, ask me a question. Well, uh, Steve. Um, no. no. 
You must ask. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Margaret. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher, I do apologise. Mrs. Thatcher, what is your view of uh, the miners? Britain went through a great crisis when we had the Falklands War. A few years after that, we had the miners' strike, and we stood up to both of them. Both of them. And well, that sort of I can't. You know, yes. I, can't I, I just want. I just want to say that you know, as, as I said earlier, that's the, the seminal Thatcher. And for younger listeners who are not familiar with Margaret Thatcher, you don't need to anymore because you've just heard her there. <laughs> but but John then then said, well, you know, what other voices do you do? I said, well, I'm interested yeah. in politics, so I did Roy Hattersley again. No, in those days, nobody had done Roy Hattersley. He said, that's really good. He said, do you do any more? And I said. Enoch Powell was still around. I said, I do Enoch Powell. If you are interested, he said, we he said we got an Enoch Powell puppet. And he said, do you do any more? And I said, I do this and I, I do that. Because essentially it was, going to be, it was going to be almost an exclusive political show. So all the showbiz people that I did, like the Bruce Forsyth and the, um, oh, I think, they, I think they had Attenborough. I think they'd had, I think they had David Attenborough. So I can't remember whether I did him at the time. I can't remember <laughs> now. But anyway, yeah. but basically... From that moment on, I was basically signed up to, to for spitting image. Um, so in my that, life. I mean, that must have been yeah, exactly. I mean, that must have been a, uh, a enormous sea change. And was it Sunday night viewing? It was kind yes, of yes, that Sunday, yeah. uh, Sunday night, ten ten o'clock or ten thirty. Ten o'clock, I think. Yeah, that's right. And people used to just get ready for that, and, and it was the way to end the weekend. It was, yeah. Uh, it was a way to, and 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 John Lloyd hated the word satirical. He said it's not satirical. It's <laughs> to the rich and famous and that's yes, what you'd had a long you know hopefully a good weekend you'd been to the pub you had to go to work monday morning it was tough times minor strike and all the rest of it and you just wanted to go to politicians and the rich and famous and Indeed. that's what well in the very last sort of noggins of uh, spitting image i i applied because i hadn't really started performing until i was 34 so that was it was a bit late in the day and i sent a tape into Spitting Image and they got in touch with me and they liked my tape. But they said to me, can you carry, he said, your voices are very accurate, but some of the voices we do on Spitting Image, they have to be larger. They have to be bigger, almost caricatures. Did, were you given that direction? Oh yeah, we, we, yeah. we did. I'm not mentioning names, but uh, it, was, it was an odd thing because th- there were three talents that you needed. You needed to do the impression you needed to be able to do sketch comedy and you needed the voice to match what the puppet looked like. Sure. What really mattered on Spitting Image, it was the latter that mattered more than anything else. Uh, Harry Harry Enfield was the best at it, frankly. But what you needed to do was to be able to... So, so for example, I offered to do, quite early in, in Spitting Image's era, Robert Ronsey, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, and and I'd been working on him, and uh, and if I remember how to Robert Ronsey spoke rather like that, and he had that way of speaking, which was, you know, as Jesus said. And John Lloyd Bliss said, "Steve, it's very good, but it's too slow, yeah, uh, and it's a little puppet." He said, I, and isn't it a great note? This is why John Lloyd was a, just a brilliant, brilliant director. He said, okay, take that voice that you've got. Now imagining that voice 
of that same voice when he was seven years old, when he was a little boy. Because we're, we're, we're going to go with Ron so that he still believes in Santa Claus. What a great direction. A wonderful direction. So I thought, all right, how do I do that? So I took this slow, deliberate voice and slightly speeded him up and then made him slightly lighter and more naive and said, I do. He said, that's it. That's the voice we will go with Robert Ronson. And it worked. It clicked. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't on it that often, but it just, it just seemed to work. With, with Hattersley, you mentioned about the puppet. With the puppet, as I recall it, they gave him a massive bottom lip. And yes. when he spoke, uh, you know, saliva, water would just come. Well, flying. I also did the puppets. I, yeah. I actually oh, operated, and they gave me him. I, they, I, never, did, I never did Thatcher because she was too difficult, actually. She had such a tiny mouth. It was, it, the, the, the bigger the mouth, the easier it is to operate. And the smaller right. the mouth, the more difficult. So yeah. but anyway, Anthony Asbury, an American guy. And he was the guy who said, put her in men's clothing dress her up as Churchill. And in those days, they would take ideas from anywhere. That's a great idea, use it. So yeah, I did, I did Hattersley. Hattersley was just, on the whole, that was a, a reproduction sort of voice and an exaggeration. And actually over the years, I got it more exaggerated and it really didn't sound like him at all. If you listen to the real Hattersley, he's actually quite an intelligent sort of chap. <laughs> and rather sometimes rather pompous but i didn't do it like that i didn't oh neil and so you know you you, you took the reality and you slightly yeah. caricatured it and and as i said there were people who came in who were pretty keen to work on spitting image and they were brilliant but they couldn't turn that into the next stage they couldn't do the sketches another thing so beyond uh, Spitting Image, what finished, the, uh, what, 94? 96, I think. 90, well, it might be 94. I finished in 94. I, I <laughs> didn't in the last two years. So, um, so what, what happened to your career from that? Obviously, you were still doing uh, well, what was I knew Thatcher was coming to an end. You could just tell. I also knew Spitting Image wouldn't last forever. And again, it goes back to Yarwood. I sort of knew that I would need an insurance policy because I'd seen what happened to him when Mrs. Thatcher came along because Wilson, Callahan, and Heath, they had gone. And Thatcher was now queen of the road, whatever. Uh, and his career took a... It, it was difficult for him, frankly, because he wasn't doing the prime minister anymore, yeah. which he was known for. So I knew it would happen to me. And so what I did was I... I stayed on Spitting Image doing puppets. So when Mrs. Thatcher and Spitting Image came to an end, I was a quite, a, I'd trained up as a puppeteer and puppeteers are lovely people, but their ego is in their arm and the way they, they create the, the movements and so on. And vocally, uh, you get some quite strong puppeteer that, uh, vocally, but, but on the whole, that's not what their background is. So I was quite good at voices and I spent about five or six years doing puppet shows, children's puppet shows, which was actually great fun, actually, uh, mainly children's shows I did. I worked, I did a workshop with some guys who were about, I think they were about 22, 23, a few years ago. And they were asking me about, you know, what I did because they didn't know anything about Spitting Image or, you know, my background as, um, as Mrs. Thatcher. They said, oh, well, you, are you an actor? I said, oh, I've done some acting. I did, you know, I was also a puppeteer. And I, I mentioned the show I'd worked on. And their faces just said you worked on cat's eyes we watched that every single day when we were kids 
which I, I said I was the Jimmy the cat. And there's, this is Jimmy the cat from Cat's Eyes. So, um, and actually, it was actually quite useful because a certain amount of repeats on it, which actually brought in an income. And that what that allowed me to do in the late 90s was teach because I was invited to Birmingham University, University of Birmingham, as they prefer to call it, as a visiting lecturer. So I did that for about seven years, which I absolutely loved. I, what, what, what was your... Well, they, that's the thing where they said to me, they said, would you come back and teach? I said, well, what do I teach? They said, anything you like. I said, really? Yeah. Just create a course. So I did a comedy course. I did a stand-up comedy course. One of the guys on my stand-up comedy course you might have heard of was a guy called Matthew Good, who is now an actor. He's an actor, uh, yeah. He's in Downton Abbey. And, and he wasn't thought of as particularly, he wasn't thought of as a great actor at the university a nice lad, but you know, it was nothing special. And he really shone on my course. Actually, what we didn't realize was that, what the camera would like him because he has stunningly good skin. And then you sort of see him on camera and you realize that. Anyway, he did my comedy course and he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He did, he did, I remember him doing a sketch about Santa Claus having sex with a reindeer, um, which <laughs> was because I told him there were no rules. I said, look, in comedy, there are no rules. I said, all comedians have their boundaries as, as to where they personally can go. I can't do that sort of material. But if you want to go that far, you go that far. See if it suits you. And he did this reindeer pornography thing with, not, he didn't perform it, but you know, <laughs> talked, I think he was the director. I think he was, he was the director who directed the porno with reindeer and, and Santa Claus. And it was brilliantly funny, I remember. Just uh, one other thing. A question I've been asking uh, everybody on the, the series so far. It begs the question, did you meet Thatcher? But did, did you come face to face with people? I came face to face with her. But uh, I, I, she came to a place called Limehouse Studios, which is where the puppets were made. But uh, she wasn't aware of that, I don't think, because she was visiting Limehouse Studios, which was an independent television company that mm. made, or they made uh, Who Dares Wins there you know, yep. in the 80s. And I think some of the programs. Anyway, so she was there. I could have gone up to her and said hello because she was in a couple of feet of me, but she also had, a, you know, she, she had her guards with her. She had a, the, the police and so on. So I, I didn't. There is a story. I don't know whether this is true. It's probably apocryphal. The, the spitting image was upstairs. They were aware that Mrs. Thatcher was visiting. And the story goes that I dressed up as Mrs. Thatcher and walked into the spitting image workshop room and said, stop work immediately. I never did turn around, saw me dress up, and for a second thought it was Mrs. Thatcher. I don't think that's true. I think what is true, I might well have done it without the dressing up. But it isn't, Roger Law tells it now that I dressed up, which I'm yeah. pretty certain I didn't. But anyway, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about pitch, because you mentioned it earlier on in the conversation. Your, your voice is naturally at a higher pitch, let's say, to mine. I, I always used to feel as an impressionist that that slightly limited... The, the the impressions at the higher range for me have you and you but you did a, an astonishing louis armstrong which was all gravel admittedly at some cost to your vocal cords. <laughs> yeah. did, did you find a way to fake voices that were perhaps a few registers below your natural register well yes there, there are ways particularly when you're recording it's more difficult in a live situation, but even in a live situation, you can do it. I do remember I did a, a one-man show of Homer's Odyssey, and I played all the different characters. And 
Rory Bremner came to see it and he said, he said, Steve, you can do women. Cause I had lots of female characters in the show. Cause there were lots of female characters in the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, and I'd never worried about sort of doing a female voice. So, and, and because I have a higher, so it allows me to do people like Patricia Routledge, you know, I can do that, which is taking my own voice and making it slightly. It also allows me to do Maggie Smith. You see, <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, the thing is, what I do, I, the technique I use when I'm recording um, at home, if I do recording, I do do re me. And what I do is, so do la fa mi do re. And if you then, as soon as you finish the re, you mm-hmm. begin the voice. So for example, something like James Mason. So if I do James Mason now, it's a little higher than it should be. But so do la fa mi do re do James Mason now in his distinctly at very level. What a great technique. So <laughs> even I do that in voiceover studios, people think I'm a bit mad. But you just you're got you're doing is you're going in at the low note the shape of your throat and everything is in the low part yeah. equally high so and because so do re, uh, so it goes so do la fa mi do re and so then you want to do julie andrews so do la fa mi do re so do la ti do re do and suddenly you're way up there doing, you know, and actually, if you learn, you can think, ah, where is muscle memory, where your throat is at the low point and at the high point. But actually, if you're, pre- if you're recording it in a studio, uh, so uh, it, with a lot of stuff I've done, something like an audio book or something, and, you know, as the day goes on, your voice naturally gets higher mm. because it, the, 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 the chords stretch. Yeah. So you, you begin very low. People like, singers like to record in the morning, male singers, because their voice is, is naturally low. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. as the day goes on, it gets <clears> higher. Uh, and obviously, the more tense you get on stage, the, the higher your voice gets and you end up... <laughs> um, so you then just got to relax everything and then bring it all down. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that because I've been the voice of uh, Land Rover for about the last seven years. And the, I used to do like, you know, uh, Land Rover above and beyond. And I used to insist that we did them in the morning, you know, because yeah. in the morning I'd wake up down here and do my little Welsh thing. But, the, you know, by the afternoon, it's starting to, to go a bit. And so, you know, we tried to do morning sessions. Uh, Steve, this has been uh, fascinating and uh, very entertaining. Uh, we're coming to the end. I suppose what I've, what I've been trying to do in the course of this is to get my guests to teach me an impression. I don't really do impressions anymore, so it's, it's a long, long time anyway since I practiced and you know went, went out and actually performed impressions. So you know, pick anyone you like. Uh, well, this I do in my act actually, because mm-hmm. I, I uh, the, the one person I we've not mentioned uh, who I worked with was Eddie Large. He was a very good impression. He was very he was good, very good. And he what he did, which was completely different to Mike Yarwood, he used to deconstruct the voice. He used to do a wonderful routine of people 
cars starting in that voice and you would find that one aspect of the the voice and and uh, the, the car starting and that was i thought it was, that was just brilliant no one had ever yeah. done that before and it, it is that sort of deconstruction i mean i do it with with someone like Anne widdicombe who i i say that she sounds like uh, she sounds like a mobile phone with bad reception Ah, <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, can I, can I, can I say to you, and uh, you, and and if she had a car, uh, <laughs> it would start uh, like that uh, to steal from uh, Eddie Lodge. Uh, can I, can I, can I, can I? Yeah. So anyway, so that's a very good way in to, yeah. to you know take from the Eddie Lodge thing. So that's one way in. Uh, in my act, I do a, a routine, and I say I'm going to teach you how to do the voice of. Fozzie Bear from the Muppets. Now, the first thing you need is something that has that gruff, rough, gruff texture of the Fozzie Bear growl. And for that, we're going to use the deep, full-bodied voice of Darth Vader. Look, I am your father. I am your father. Okay, I'm sort of there. Yeah, the gruff. That's the false fulfination, which is very bad for you. You can do five (laughs) seconds of it without problem. Okay, yeah. And then for Fuzzy Bear, you need the undulating up and down rhythm that goes with that. So for that undulating up and down rhythm, I suggest you use Homer Simpson. Homer from the Simpsons who goes up and then down and then up and then down and then up and then down. (laughs) Have a go at that. Get no, up and down, get up and down, and go. Oh, I'm sounding more like uh, Mr. No, Mr. Mr. My, Magoo. My, my Homer Simpson line sounded like Fred Flintstone for several <laughs> years before it got any good. So, so then what you do is you combine. You combine. Look, I am your father. With Homer Simpson, and suddenly you're Fuzzy Bear from the Muppets. Yeah. Oh. So I'm starting down here, and then I'm going up there. Well, thank you. I have. There you see, you've got pitch and you've got rhythm, and you, you you mix them up, and then you get the new voice. I found it. Well, thank you, Steve. I used to do this thing with in stand up race to get everyone to do Frank Carson, which was um, a bit of a stretch because people forgot who it's he was. It's the way he did them. That's it's the way, way I tell them. It's the way I tell them. But he used to do this thing where he'd say, um, he'd go, have a cracker. <laughs> at the end of every check. And I'd get everyone to just go, <laughs> and I'd say, get to the very end where your lungs no longer work. Yes. And that's when you speak, you know. <laughs> anyway. We all need those. We all need those when we're doing voices because Absolutely. we need the way in. Yes. We need that little, what, what, what singers call the bell note, which yeah. is just that phrase that gets you into the voice. We all yeah. have those. Yeah. It's been fascinating. Thank you. I, I, I can now add... Fuzzy bear to my uh, my list of impressions, uh, Steve. I feel like there's a million things we haven't talked about, but everything we have talked about, I've thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope uh, our listeners are going to uh, take as much pleasure from that as I did. But for now, Steve Allen, thank you very much, and for thank me, you, Simon Lipson, uh, making an impression. Goodbye. <laughs>